Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. My guest today is commentator, journalist and director of the uh, Catholic organisation, the Iona Institute, David Quinn. David began his working life as a journalist after a time abroad and he edited the Irish Catholic and served as religious correspondent for the Irish Independent before becoming involved in the setting up of the Iona Institute around 2007. Since then, he's been a regular commentator in the media and currently writes a weekly column for the Sunday Times. For some, he would be a representative voice of conservative Catholicism, particularly on issues like the marriage equality and repeal of the Eighth Amendment referendums. His views are often expressed from what I suppose you could call a lonely perch in the media bubble, in that some would claim such bubble is dominated by liberal or left-wing voices. All of these things, of course, are constantly in flux. It's not so long ago when a joke doing the round was that the, that the left in Ireland could fit into a minibus. But these categorizations, especially in the confused ideological political spectrums in this country, in my opinion, they tend very much to be in the eye of the beholder. David, you're very welcome. Thank you. David, I want to start with a very current issue, and that is the proposed uh, hate crime and speech legislation. Just to listeners who may not be totally up to speed with this, uh, the law is to be effectively updated in the coming months to categorise hate crime and speech. Uh, this now is an updating of the incitement to hatred a law that dated from 1989. Now, there are to be nine protected categories in this new legislation, including race, colour, nationality, religion, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender and disability. And I suppose it was described most succinctly by the release from the Department of Justice, where they're suggesting the intention is to criminalise any intentional or reckless communication or behaviour that is likely to incite violence or hatred against a person or persons because they are associated with a protected characteristic. And the penalty for this offence will be up to five years imprisonment. David, I've seen you a bit vocal and I get the impression that you think maybe this law, in your opinion, is going too far. Well, I mean, I have severe doubts about it, all right, and I think it needs to be debated in a very big way. And thanks for the opportunity uh, to be on your podcast today and talk about these things. Um, it, it, I mean, it's the kind of thing, really, I think that all journalists should be a little bit concerned about um, because it might affect them. Um, I mean, I can see what the aim of it is. I mean, there's definitely such a category as hate speech and there's definitely such a category as hate crimes. Um but how do we define all this? I mean, it's it's extremely open to question and it's questionable to me how the bill does it because it's rather vague. And I actually see the Irish Council for Civil Liberties thinks the definitions aren't tight enough. And I think they might have wanted to go further because I think they might be worried it'll be still too hard to get prosecutions under it. But I kind of think about 
concrete examples from real life, and I wonder what would happen once this legislation goes through. Um, an example from Britain, it was to happen here, you know, the famous atheist and scientist, Professor Richard Dawkins. Hmm. He said a few years ago that Islam is the greatest force for evil in the world today. That's not something I'd say. I'd say jihadism is a force for evil. We're not going to say Islam is. So I don't agree with that statement. Uh, but those people accused him of hate. So if you had an Irish Richard Dawkins who was to say something like that, what would happen to him? And the answer is, I'm not sure, under this law. And then we had Peter Casey, who ran a course in the presidential election a few years ago, and he made um, an offensive and inflammatory remark about travellers, if you recall. Mm. It was great controversy, but it also seemed to win him a lot of votes. Um, and it was people suggesting at the time, including Pave Point, uh, that he should be charged with something, and incitement to hatred law obviously wasn't good enough for that to happen. Um, uh, so what would happen to him? Uh, you had Noel Grealish a couple of years ago talking about... Um, Nigerian gangs who were sending illegal money back home to Nigeria. And he said that in the doll and it caused controversy. Uh, and there were people accusing him of hate. So what would happen to him if he said that outside of the doll chamber? And I see the columnist Ian O'Doherty was, you know, was wondering and worrying the other day in his column in the Irish Independent. Um, some of the things he has said have had complaints into the press council and that kind of thing. Um, I think it's mainly about travellers, actually, in his case. Uh, and what would happen to him? And Brenda Power, a number of years ago, wrote a column uh, where she was very critical of aspects of travel or culture. And she, too, was accused of hate and um, people wondering, should, be, should she be prosecuted under the 1989 legislation? Now, that obviously didn't happen, but would it happen under this law? And uh, the question then is, would we want it to happen? I suspect some people would, um, but it's not clear to me what would happen. And I wish somebody like Helen McEntee, the Justice Minister, uh, would be asked that question. Or indeed, Father Sean Sheehy, of course, was in big trouble last week because of his remarks in the Church and the Stole uh, on sexual morals. Um, uh, you know, there was people kind of suggesting, well, you know, is that hate speech? Leah Veratker, fortunately, said, well, I obviously don't agree with what he said, but I think he's a right to say it. So it looks to me like Leah Veratker doesn't think the law should cover that. Um, you know, somebody like Father Sheehy, but Heather Humphreys uh, commented on the same thing, and she said, well, that's a very complicated issue. So that kind of makes me a bit nervous. It was a really kick-to-touch answer. So anyway, these are the questions I have, and I haven't seen them satisfactorily answered. And what Helen McEntee would probably say is something like, well, we just have to wait and see. But I think if a minister is bringing in, bringing in a law, she should have some idea of the kind of speech it is likely to make criminal. Yeah, no, she did say that, and this is referencing the, the freedom of expression that you're talking about there, David. She did say that the bill includes a general provision to further protect genuine freedom of expression and clarifies that a communication is not taken to incite violence or hatred solely on the basis that it involves discussion or criticism of matters relating to a protected characteristic. Take, for instance, in that vein, uh, Peter Casey, as you mentioned, I mean, in, and, and the disparaging comments he made about travellers. You know, on the face of it, you look at that and say, well, would that come under criticism of matters relating to a protected characteristic? And if so, therefore, the issue of hate speech doesn't arise, you know? But you see, we don't know, do we? Um, <laughs> and it's like, it is a bit worrying that we don't know and we're asking these questions. Um, 
so it remains to be seen, so if a future Peter Casey does make a remark like that, what will happen to him? And uh, will he end up behind bars? And I think that would be an extremely bad thing if he was. Like we saw in Britain um, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, the, uh, uh, the writer Graham Linehan um, uh, had the police call to his door because I think he, quote unquote, misgendered someone or something along those lines. And next minute, the police are at his door. Um, so I'm not sure I'd want to see that happen here in Ireland. I'm not sure if that could happen under this bill. But again, it, it's very uncertain. And you see, the other thing as well is, you know, what it says in the bill, it doesn't have to be intent. They can be reckless disregard, whatever that means, for the effects of your speech or even what you've written, by the way. Um, uh, or material you publish, so it doesn't have to be what you say. Um, so what does reckless disregard mean? Uh, if you remember a few months ago, there was a big controversy because Liveline decided to open a bit of a debate about the transgender issue, and there was people saying this is hate speech. Um, I suspect Liveline would be okay under the law, um, but somebody would probably say this is reckless disregard about the effect of this debate it's going to have um, on people's minds. Um They'd probably be okay. They'd probably get onto the provisions about, you know, reasonable discourse, which are which are in there. But I'm not positive. Yeah, well, I I, I <laughs> hope Liveline in that instance would be covered because I wrote a column the next day defending what they mm. <laughs> what mm. they broadcast. But then again, I see the point you're making that there needs to be tighter definitions, I suppose, and that is something that needs to be pursued. You see, I think, uh, and you may know this better than I do, when judges are interpreting laws and cases come before them. The intention of the legislature and the lawmakers, I think, is a big consideration for them, which is why it would be good if somebody like Helen McEntee was to go on the record, well, I wouldn't want her to cover something like this, okay, because then the judge, you know, would probably take that into account. But she's been, you know, silent, so far as I know. And I've only seen her being asked soft questions about this sort of stuff by journalists who should really ask her more exacting questions than soft kind of puff questions. I mean, I think it's the job of a journalist to ask searching questions. They don't have to be hostile, just the right questions. And I just haven't really seen them being asked. Yeah, that is fair enough. And your point about judges well made, because as things stand, unless it is more specific, then judges are going to have to have a sort of an interventionist approach. And no matter which side they come down on, I don't think people are too happy with that because basically they're there to interpret the law but within the parameters of, of what the legislature um, meant uh, to be there. But mm. I, I, there is a point there about um, being more specific. The other element to it, David, is, is hate crime. And mm. there's a suggestion that uh, stuff that's already uh, criminal offences, assault and the likes, that if, the, if it is deemed as a result of evidence, presumably, and there in terms of crime, to have to be, obviously, again, beyond a reasonable doubt, that there was a hate element to it, that this would effectively could, for instance, add to a, a, a sentence that might be there on the basis that uh, this is an aggravating factor in, an, mm. in, a, in a crime. Where would you stand on that? Well, I mean, a few years ago, I was walking through town. I was, I was in around Henry Street um, in the city centre, and um, this guy comes up to me and says, you effing Catholic toe rag. He's pretty aggressive. Um, I think, by the way, that would already be covered by intimidation or harassment, that kind of behavior. But of course, you're not going to do anything about it because the guy's gone. Um, but supposing he had followed up with a punch, um, that's assault, um, obviously, so it's already against the law. Now, should he get 
an additional sentence because it was clearly motivated um, by hatred of the Catholic Church or maybe hatred of me because I'm a Catholic and kind of a well-known kind of Catholic commentator. So should he have had, if it came to it, an additional sentence because of his motivation? And I'm not so sure that he should have because I think the fact that it's assault is enough. And what's kind of interesting to me is um, we're kind of singling out certain motivations for crime um, for kind of special treatment and special punishment because um, a big motivation for crimes and murders, and in fact they've been translated into plays um, like The Field, is greed. All right? Greed, greed and jealousy are behind many crimes. And we don't say, well, that murder was motivated by greed and jealousy, therefore you get a stiffer sentence. Because it's already murder, um, and I'm not sure the motivation should come into it to that extent. And again, why do we single out some bad motivations and not other bad motivations? So I suppose that's my question. Maybe there's a good reason. I can't think well, of it. Well, yeah, no, I mean, okay, you bring the likes of greed into it, but, you know, uh, greed uh, is an innate thing that somebody has, and it's irrelevant in that sense to the perpetrator. Uh, the status of the victim, if you want to put it that way, the 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 perpetrator is 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 uh, has that greed, and it doesn't matter who the victim is. In relation to hate, surely it's a case of that if somebody is being attacked because of their uh, come under one of the protected um, categorizations, rape because somebody's racist, homophobic, mm. whatever, you know that that is that's a crime against. A minority, and that's the way it's viewed in that respect, as opposed to just a, a physical crime. Well, a protected characteristic is religion. Um, so yeah, I ass- yeah, I, and in your, yeah, exactly. In your case, yeah. I would say yes. I, I, to be honest with you, I would no. One can argue in terms of a Catholic in this country is it a minority, and th- th- would that impinge on any societal ideas or whatever? But in general terms, I, I, I would suggest yeah that if you were being attacked mm. because you were a Catholic, then yes, that that that, that adds to the crime effectively. Wouldn't that be a weird one though? If um, <laughs> I was I was commenting on this, don't give him an extra sentence. <laughs> <laughs> just have him up for assault and you'll say, no, you need to give that guy an extra sentence. That'll be an interesting one. Well, the, you, you have a scenario, for example, in, in, in the UK, as far as I understand it, for example, in football. Um, mm. We all know that, you know, on the football pitch, the Premier League, sledging this absolute abuse of your opponent. Yeah. We see it in Gaelic football, see it here, everywhere. it goes mm. on in horrific circumstances and it's legendary some of the stuff people say about an individual's family, their partner, what have you. You can do all of that on the football pitch, but if you introduce an element of race, for instance, you can be reported and banned. And when I first saw that, I thought, well, Jesus, that's a bit harsh if someone can say whatever they like to you, but if your instinctive reaction introduces race, but when you stand back and look at it, racism is such an endemic issue. There's a case for it. Well, I don't feel as strongly about the second issue we're talking about, which is, you know, assault motivated, uh, which is motivated um, by hate against particular groups. Um, that's more of a toss up for me. Um, it's the uh, possible effects on written material and speech and so on and all the uncertainties around it that I would be more worried about. OK, fair enough. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, another very topical issue and one that you, you have written about uh, a number of times is mm. immigration, where we stand at the moment. Just a line I pulled out here from one of your recent columns, mm. and I think this sums up to a large extent where you might be coming from. As with so many other political debates, discussions about immigration in Ireland tend to take place under conditions of extreme moral blackmail. Put a foot wrong or even give the appearance of doing so and expect to be labelled a bigot or a racist. David, I put this to you. As far as I can see in terms of immigration at the moment, in Mm. this country we have free movement within the EU We have work visas for those who are required and they have to show that they really are required for people coming here from outside the EU who are deemed necessary for the economy. And we have asylum seekers who, you know, to the greatest or lesser extent, are fleeing some form of pestilence or conflict. Mm. What do we need to have a discussion about? Well, the discussion, I guess, is... um, I mean, what I tend to bring up is um, what should the extent of immigration be, um, what kind of considerations should immigration policy be guided by? And everything you're saying there indicates what it should be guided by. So the EU, we have open borders, so that's that. And when it comes to other countries, we don't, and we accept immigrants, um, if they're economic, according to the needs of the economy. And I have absolutely no issue with that. But, um, I mean, I presume the people in charge of policy are thinking, but okay, how many do we need at any one time? And they've got to consider various things. So how many vacancies in the labour market need to be filled? But they should really also be considering things like, what's the effect on demand for housing, which is scarce? What's the effect of demand for hospital places, which we know is under big pressure as well? Uh, what's the demand for places and schools? And of course, as many schools in parts of Ireland now are crying out for pupils. Um, but also there's capacity issues, which obviously have to be considered all the way. Um, asylum seeking is a separate issue because we have more control over um, economic migrants from outside the EU that we accept into the country. So these are all perfectly rational questions. But I notice when you ask these questions, you just get incredible volleys of abuse, as I get regularly on this. So I always say to my critics, do you favour open borders? And some are honest enough to say, actually, yes, we do. And so my response is, good luck selling that to voters. Um, uh, I, but, I think but, but surely that is, uh, could I suggest, David, that's mm. at the extreme end of things. I mean, I don't think the majority of as you said, you, would, you wouldn't sell mm. it to voters. Is the majority a comment? Is there a suggestion that there should be open borders? Well, what I see an absence of is any discussion of the kind of considerations which I was just trying, you know, attempting to go through, which is, okay, what's the effect of X number on the housing stock of that same yeah. number on hospitals and so on? I, I really don't see consideration of those questions very much at all. Um, it's as if... 
you know, questions like that are discouraged because of the sort of tendencies that they might strengthen within Irish debate and within the electorate and within society. So therefore, we don't go near them. And I think an honest and mature political system would, in fact, consider some of those questions. And I don't think we do. OK, but let me put this way to you. From my read of what you're saying, those and they are absolutely valid questions and, mm. and, and balancing what's perceived as the needs of the economy versus, as you're setting it out, the needs of society. Mm. But the, the, the category that those questions would be asked in, as far as I can see, is, is in terms of the work visas for those coming from outside the EU. And I may be wrong, but in the overall context of the number of people who come in here, that's a pretty small number compared to within the EU and compared to asylum seekers, which is a pretty small number in itself I don't, as well. I'm, I don't think that's true, actually, um, in respect of people coming from outside the EU. Um, I wish now I'd looked at the figures from the CSI. I, I, I wish I did too yeah, for be, you. Be, before coming on. But I think it's by no means a negligible number. Right. And I think it's m- more comparable with people coming in from other EU countries than you might think. So right. it's not a small amount. Now okay, again, well, we can, even, we can even both race off and look up to see yeah, yeah. No, no, this. no, but yeah. okay, let's assume it's, it, it, it's a relatively serious cohort and all. Mm. But within that, what you would be talking about is a kind of discussion between business interests and those who are interested in 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 the uh, the provision of services effectively, and for for whom that would be their main issue. That's to me would strike me as being the area where you would have the main discussion there. Um, but don't you think, though, that in a healthy political system, you might have um, more politicians in the doll, kind of in a sensible way, raising these questions and saying, "But okay, um, how many workers do we need?" at the present time because of labour shortages. Um, have we compared this to, um, you know, what kind of strain it might put on the health system and on the housing system and so on? And I just don't see proper debates about that. So then somebody would conclude, okay, we can cope with this number. Um, this other number would be too high or this other number indeed would be too low. Um, but I simply don't see discussions about that kind of thing. But what I do see is a discussion absolutely riddled with accusations of racism and bigotry if you try to bring these things up. Now, I know Twitter is a particular kind of bubble, and so you'll get way more of this sort of stuff on there. And that's why I'll say to the people attacking me, do you want open borders? Most of them, by the way, even though some of them say, yes, we do, most of them end up after a while admitting, well, I don't. Is said, okay, well, <laughs> how do you decide what the limit should be on the numbers coming in. And then you begin to have a rational discussion. You see, the two the two questions there in the immigration debate um, have always got to be who and how many. All right, yeah. so who do we need um, and how many um, do we need? Um, and like one of the kind of fantasies of sort of, if I can call it the multicultural view, is all cultures are equally compatible. Um, and it's just not the case. Um, uh, you know, it's dangerous territory to even talk about this. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm slightly nervous to talk about it. But I just don't think that, um, uh, you know, people, you know, Poles are easily integrated into Ireland. Um, but I'm not so sure that people from, we'll say, Afghanistan are equally compatible as Poles. And same, likewise, if uh, a lot of Irish were to move to Egypt, 
would be would we be as compatible as people from Jordan? And would you would you put that down predominantly to religions or all kinds of Morse, things? Religion, right. tradition, histories, um, all of this, they all come together and they mean it's easier for Irish to um, integrate and assimilate into country A and country B. I mean, that's absolutely, completely obvious, you know, when you think about it. It's very easy for Irish to go to England, we'll say, or Australia, which is where I lived, or America or Canada, any of these places. Um, some Irish, uh, you know, building workers went to places like Germany. But, I mean, there's a reason that hundreds of thousands of us didn't, we'd say, go to Egypt. Um, because it would be a much harder for con- country for us to integrate into. But is that the reason, David, or is it simply economics and, and proximity? Well, supposing there was plenty of jobs there. Um, I, just, I, I, I think an Irish person would be thinking, OK, where am I likely to settle in better? And it's going to be England. I right. mean, just without any question. Yeah, that, no, that's, that, that, that's fair enough. No, what I would suggest is, you know, you, you may well have a point. I suppose you do have a point in terms of the lack of discussion. But... When you look around at the the way the discussion has taken hold in, you mentioned England, the UK, going to Western Europe, going to the US, and you really have the opposite. You have something that's completely irrational in terms of any discussion they have in immigration that does become racist. Yes, it does. There's no, there's no question about that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, what you're talking about, I wonder, is there a happy medium there? Because I, I can't see it in any other countries around. Even if you're to take your point that we don't discuss it at all here, at least mm. we don't discuss it the way that most countries we're familiar with yeah. discuss it. I mean, hopefully they're not the two alternatives. Like, if you take a country like Denmark, I mean, Denmark has mainly been ruled by social democrats through its modern history and it's a social democratic government now. Um. Denmark is incredibly strict uh, about asylum seeking. They have a Rwanda policy now uh, where the asylum seekers get processed in Rwanda. That's way too harsh for my liking. But it's just interesting that a social democratic government felt obliged to bring in a law like that because they felt under pressure from these kind of populist nationalist sort of parties. Um, and they saw they were leaking lots of support uh, from their original you know, working class votes that they were originally set up to cater for and champion so that Social Democrats knew we are not getting back into power unless we tackle this issue. And by the way, the Social Democrats in Sweden were um, beginning to adopt similar policies because they saw they're leaking all these working class voters. Um, so if you're a Social Democratic Party, um, is your main aim to look after kind of middle class urban liberals or is it your original voter base? And in, in some of these countries, they've decided we're only getting back into power if we begin to listen to our old working class supporters again, which made them strict around these issues. But nobody looks at what they're doing in uh, places like Sweden and Denmark. We only look at what they're doing in places like Britain and the United States. So we need to kind of widen the scope here a bit, in my opinion, and look at these other places too. Yeah, no, fair point. It is a fair point. And, and to, the, to the extent nothing wrong with discussion, I would agree with you. It, it, it's once such discussion can take place um, within parameters that don't stray into the kind of thing we've seen, um, particularly see, in is, the likes of the yeah. UK. You see, I mean, it, like, clearly there's dangers in the discussion, but there's also dangers if you don't, if you don't allow it. Because yes. what, happens, what happens then is, and a term I saw used by an academic in Britain is, you let the bootleggers in. Yes. All right, so, so the very thing you fear when mainstream politicians won't go near any of this is income to bootleggers. And the bootleggers are these kind of genuinely far-right parties that come in and say, well, 
if the mainstream parties won't address any of your concerns, we're going to do it for you. So we're going to start bringing into hooch illegally, so to speak. Um, so I think I think actually the very thing that we fear in allowing any kind of a debate about this feeds the thing that we don't want to happen. If that makes any sense, it does. It does indeed. Yeah, and I I, I can see exactly. Um, I can see exactly where you're coming from in that. You see, the immigration issue is actually something that um, I haven't devoted much of my writing to down the years. But something I like to do with my column is if I see questions not being asked that I think ought to be asked because they're fair questions, I will go there as a general rule. So I see questions not being asked around this issue. um, And I say, okay, I feel kind of obliged to write a column about this. Yeah, and to be fair to you, I've seen a few of your columns and I've seen reaction to them and... You mentioned about Twitter, the type of place it is, and mm. I have to say, the reactions I saw bore no resemblance to what I read in terms of what you wrote. And that brings me on to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and just to introduce it in in this way. Um, again, this was an, an issue, <laughs> that awful place, Twitter, that's getting worse mm. by the day, but... This is a thing I saw uh, Mick Nugent, who's head of Atheist Ireland, mm. and yourself down through the years on numerous programmes, what have you. You would have been at opposite ends. You'd, you'd mm. have completely contrasting views. You'd be very much regarded as, as the voice of Catholicism. Mm. He was Mr. Conservative. Yeah, and, and he, particularly in areas like the church's involvement in in education and health, and Mick would have been on the opposite end. And euthanasia and abortion and yes. same-sex marriage, everything. Everything. You, you, yeah. You'd completely mm. different views and, and you're often wheeled out one against the other as mm. is the nature of, of programming. And then next thing it turns out that, uh, I think you were bought a news talk and you mentioned, oh, you actually went for lunch together once. <laughs> and next thing you know, particularly uh, Mick Nugent, as far as I could see, this avalanche of abuse. Basically, what do you mean you don't hate David Quinn? You're supposed to hate him. You can't just be opposed to him. And uh, (laughs) I just found the thing quite unbelievable. But it's, and I think you, I don't know, is it you coined it, but you certainly used that phrase, the illiberal left. Mm, mm. Um, I didn't coin it. You didn't coin it. Did no, not you, coin it. Right. Long yeah. predates me. Right, right. But I, I, uh, I hadn't come yeah. across, maybe I wasn't mm. looking in the right places. Mm. But anyway, um, tell me what you think about that in this country. Well, I mean, myself and Mick Nugent, as you say, have been on many programmes together, always on opposite sides. And we'd have um, a robust debate, but always a respectful debate. And then we'd go off and we'd have a drink maybe afterwards and we get on well and we talk about things like football. Um, uh, uh, I mean, it's kind of funny, by the way, um, and as slightly as an aside, um, during COVID, um, and, and now it's kind of lingering after effect, you don't go into studio so much, therefore you don't meet the person yeah. you're debating against face-to-face. And it allows you to humanise the person a lot when you meet them. Uh, myself and Mick go back long before the whole pre uh, COVID, you know, long before COVID. So we met a lot and got to like each other. But as you say, um, people kind of on his side of the divide saying, what are you doing talking to him? Um, you don't humanize people like that, which to me is a kind of modern version of sectarianism, like the way Catholics and Protestants would have avoided each other. And you can't be talking to one another because that's just appalling. Um, 
so in fact, you need a kind of ecumenical dialogue, or um, if I can put it that way, between people who be on opposite sides of the culture war, to use that term. And there's not enough of that. But you see, again, you have a certain tendency, and to be on both sides, but I think it's, it's particularly visible on what I call the left. Um, don't humanize people like that. Um, if you're going to get photographed at lunch with a guy like David Quinn, you must understand that um, you're making him more acceptable. If you make him more acceptable, you're making his terrible views more acceptable, and that's not acceptable. And that's exactly where sectarianism comes from. Uh, put them completely to the outer margins, beyond the pale, isolate them, marginalize them, don't treat them like proper human beings. And this is just a recipe for disaster. And you get, I mean, America, I was watching um, um, uh, a BBC program about the midterms and um, uh, they were noting that Democrats and, and Republicans used to live in the same neighborhoods very often. Now they don't. They're separating. This is not a good thing for people with different political persuasions to be separating and effectively self-segregating into different neighborhoods. It's a really bad tendency. Um, not happening here as yet. But when you do have people saying, don't we have a lunch together? Bad thing. Now, like in respect of illiberal liberalism, um, I mean, liberalism is obviously uh, easily the dominant view in Ireland now. And I see a kind of split, and it's between the likes of yourself, Mick, who I think is a liberal liberal, um, who's willing to talk to people like me, and then those who say, don't talk to people like him. Um, and there's a kind of authoritarian persuasion there that, to my mind, is behind the hate legislation and wants it to go further. Uh, in order to silence people, imprison them, cancel people, um, get them sacked, um, don't invite them onto programs, don't invite them to address university debating societies. We saw that with Richard Dawkins, we mentioned earlier, at the His Society in Trinity. Um, suddenly this guy who's liberal in all the issues doesn't get invited because of things he said about, it, about Islam in the past. So people like me have very, very little cultural influence anymore, uh, but people like you do. Um, so I, I think um, the debate has to be something of an internal debate among liberals about um, uh, who eventually prevails here, the liberal liberals or the illiberal ones who, who believe in cancel culture. Yeah, I've been called a lot of things, David. That's the first time I've been called a liberal liberal. <laughs> but, but I think you are. Well, I, mean, I, well, I, I, no, I, 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 I take your point where you come from. But mm. it, you've been around a good while, no more than myself. This is a relatively recent phenomenon, I think, is it? Uh, yeah, so I've been writing a column since 94, so it's not today or yesterday. Um, I think social media has made it worse. Mm. Um, I think it's polarising. I mean, there have been people all down the years wanted to see the back of me. So this is even before social media. Um, and journalists thinking, don't employ that guy. Don't give him a column. I mean, if we ever meet over a pint, I'll tell you more. Okay? Mm. So it's often been pretty nasty. Um, so it predates social media, but it's unquestionably got worse with social media. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is because there are appalling people on the right who are visible in social media. And you don't want that voice to become too predominant. And people get scared who are on the kind of liberal side. This can't happen. And we got to hold the barbarians back and not let them through the gates. Um, but they just overreach them. And they say we can't allow anything that even remotely resembles that view to have any kind of an outing. And so we just got to cancel everything. Yeah, and on, on a similar note, and this occurred, in, and, and I wrote about this at the time, uh, this project, the Global 
project against hate and extremism. Yeah. And they set out what they they said they're doing a number they're doing it's basically a, a US um, mm. human rights organization actually the, its origins some of the people involved in it they were in the Southern Poverty Law Center mm. which is, which has a very reputable very reputable organization but here they seem to be saying that they're 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 doing various surveys around the world and countries and the far right in countries and they did a report based on here and they. There was some input from uh, a group, um, the Far Right Observatory, mm. and I had somebody from that on here a few weeks ago, Mark Malone. But um, anyway, the point being, among the so-called Far Right organisations they named was your Iona Institute. Mm. I, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I saw it, David, and I was taken aback because I, I think when you get into that, is it a situation that? Everybody you don't like is merely far right. Um, I think you end up devaluing the term uh, because if you overuse it, um, you know, you're eventually going to wear it out and people stop listening. Uh, well, you call everybody that who you disagree with. Um, and so the, the term eventually loses its potency. And it, it, like it's a bit like the boy who cried wolf. Eventually the wolf does come and nobody believes you anymore because you're calling everything a wolf. Um, and there's an element of that here. So you have this organization in America that nobody, nobody's ever heard of. I mean, um, America has a gigantic proliferation of these organizations. And so it's such a big country with 330 million people. And so they decide, well, we don't like you, you and you, and we're going to lump you all together, even though it's going to be just absolutely absurd. But you see, this is, to me, all part of the attempt to smear and marginalize and um, uh, push out of public debate um, voices like me, frankly. Um, so I'm so like I'm hanging in there, uh, and hopefully I'll be around a while yet. Uh, but you can see the tendencies that exist um, to do this, and you know there's this concept, the Overton window, which is the um, uh, the range of acceptable opinion, and I see it getting ever more narrow. Um, and I just wonder if eventually I'm going to be pushed out of the Overton window because it's happened to other columnists in Ireland. Um, like we can name them. Um, and should it have happened to them? Uh, and it only ever happens to people who'd be kind of on the more uh, conservative side. Uh, you can say whatever you like about the Catholic Church. You can say whatever you like about nuns. You can say whatever you like about men. And there'll never be a consequence, ever. I'm not saying, by the way, there should be. Uh, but some of the rhetoric and demonization of nuns, most of whom are blameless and some of whom have led heroic lives, is completely over the top. And some of the imagery you see about them, um, I saw them outside Leinster House when they were protesting against the National Maternity Hospital going to St. Vincent's campus. Just horrendous imagery of the nuns and just, I mean, basically um, likened to Nazis, in effect. Mm. Uh, I wonder, by the way, what would happen under hate speech um, laws uh, if that sort of stuff still gets produced about nuns and they all get tarred with this brush. Is there anything in that historically we go through backlashes? I mean, if you look at the US, for instance, the 1980s, the rise of conservatism there was, to a certain extent, the backlash against the the, the 60s, free love, etc., mm. whatever you want to call it. Mm. The, the church here, the role it had, what has come out even most recent days we see a, another order in terms of sexual abuse what have you. and horrible All stuff it, in France has just come out by the way there's a, there's, there's a cardinal implicated in the scandal over there yeah. something like 11 bishops accused it's just horrible stuff yeah and but particularly in this country considering mm. the role the church had in mm. it uh, and you look at 
minorities, the, the, the treatment of uh, gay people, what have you, the, the, the one that a lot of people are talking about at the moment is transgender, but there's all sorts mm. of things around that. But is there a case that we're going through a backlash, David, and, and that things will move back towards the centre at some stage? Um, yes, I think you're right. Um, I mean, it's understandable in the decades after independence, there was a lot of anti-English feeling in the country. Um, and you couldn't say anything good about England because if you did, you were a West Brit and all the rest of it. Um, and I think something similar is taking place with the church. And it kind of um, stops, but it stops in the end rational debate taking place. Uh, I mean, the backlash is understandable. The church was highly authoritarian and the scandals were just absolutely off the charts, horrible uh, and revolting. And um, so here's me. I mean, I still go to mass each week and there's some weeks you just wonder why. Um, and, I mean, the extent to which the institutional church has let down ordinary mass goers, never mind the victims, is just horrendous. Um, and it is amazing to me in a way that anybody still goes to mass. But they go to mass because they still believe in the thing in itself. Uh, they believe in Christianity. They believe in the gospel. They believe in coming together to worship. Um, so they do that um, despite the scandals. Uh, but there's very few people now in Ireland proud to be Catholic um, because of the legacy and the baggage. I mean, I can't say I'm a proud Catholic. I'm not. I'm a believing Catholic, but I'm not proud because of the legacy of kind of institutional Catholicism here, including the scandals. And it's a very painful thing to watch um, and to witness and the continual way in which the institutional churches just, you know, let down ordinary Catholics over and over and over again. Uh, but you still hang on in there. I mean, this is not an exact analogy. Um, sport has been beset by all kinds of scandals, including sex abuse scandals and cover-ups. Um, and you've had, by the way, bribery scandals, drug abuse scandals, cover-ups, all the rest of it. Uh, and it's not the same because obviously sport never... Um, lorded it over the country in the same way the Catholic Church did. So they can't be directly compared. But nonetheless, who would stop playing their favourite sport because of sporting scandals? Because you still believe in the thing in itself, despite the fact that the governing body of your sport might be absolutely appalling. And as we know, there's been those multiple, multiple, multiple scandals and corruption involved in sport down the years. Uh, scandal as bad as you could possibly get. But you don't stop following your favourite sport or playing your favourite sport because of that, because you believe in the thing itself. So I suppose that's my attitude towards Catholicism and Christianity. Despite everything, I still believe in the thing in itself. Ah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, finally, just wanting to ask you, because this comes up anytime the Iona Institute mm. comes up, these David, in terms of funding, there are suggestions, there have been many, and I'm sure you know all about them, mm. that to effectively, that it's on life support, that it's being financially supported by forces outside the state. Russia's been mentioned, uh, particular interest in the USA. What's the story there? Um, so ever since I set up, it, uh, uh, ever since I set up Iona, which is 07, we've been accused of getting money from outside the country. Um, uh, I mean, the Russia one is just amazing. I mean, that's the latest one. Um, it was America for years and years and years. And now it's Russia. Uh, so we raise, and it's in the accounts, we raise 150 to 200 k a year. Uh, the great majority of it comes from small donors. Um, uh, like a big donation to us would be 5K. Um, and they would average, you know, 50 or, or 100. Nearly all Irish people. There's a guy in America, he's Irish. He has a standing order of 100 euro a month. Um, um, there is, we got 5K off a of foundation. 
that's based in the US a couple of times. Um, I would say the amount of money that's come in from overseas in the 14 years, 15 years of our existence is probably 5% of the total. Right. You know, and, and you see, like, so we're able to raise money from kind of mainly ordinary masculine Catholics. Um, the National Women's Council has to get all this money from the state. I mean, why don't they get money from ordinary donors? But they don't because they can't raise it. But we can. We get, so we've been able to kind of wash our face, so to speak, by going to, you know, by going to Irish donors almost entirely for all this time. And yet people just come up with Da Vinci style, Da Vinci Code style conspiracy <laughs> theories about us that they just drop on our heads um, constantly. Yeah, if I could plot around that and could make the kind mm. of money the Da Vinci Code made, I wouldn't care where it came from. Mm. David, listen, thanks very much. Uh, as you say, and I agree with you completely, the main thing is people keep talking. Thanks for talking thank to us today. Thank you. That's it, folks. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. As always, thank you for listening. Hang in there and we'll be back with you next week. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.